0: Okay, hello and welcome to another Scottish documentary podcast. My name's Duncan, and today we have a podcast uh, featuring highlights from masterclass with Tracy Holder from uh, the organisation Women Make Movies, which you might have heard of. Um, Tracy did a class with us back in 2013 um, talking about all sorts of things, including her newest, uh, feature documentary at the time, um, Pap in Five Acts, which you can look up online, find out more about how you can, uh, see that. In the class she talked about a lot of things, um, you know, the business side of filmmaking and how to get funding and, you know, a little bit about collaborators and interview techniques and just a whole range of stuff. So I'll just, um, I'll just let the highlights play and, uh, Hope you enjoy.
1: And I don't know if if this is something that has been uh, discussed here at the Scottish Documentary Institute, but there's a real movement in the States now, uh, particularly after Al Gore came out with Inconvenient Truth, right? When that film came out, the Bush administration was in power. They were questioning whether climate change was real. They were saying the scientific consensus wasn't definitive on the issue. That film came out and overnight, That issue was shut down. Climate change was accepted by the mass of American people. And the discussion changed. The paradigm shifted, all by a film. The impact that that had was that it made all of these funders who had been funding environmentalists and journalists and academics to try to get the issue of climate change before the public. It made them realize that film can put a human face on a lot of abstract, wonkish policy issues and make them accessible to a wide audience. And after that we saw in the States this dramatic shift of film funding from documentary as an art form, where you as an artist had a vision, whatever that vision was, and you could put forward that vision and say, fund me as an artist, to funding becoming almost exclusively focused on social issue films that could really look at the the most pressing social issues and put them in the context of these campaigns that would use these films to engage people around the issues. And if you look at what's being produced now in the documentary universe, you'll see that the preponderance of the films that are coming out now do deal with social issues. And I would argue that one of the reasons that there are so many of those films, not that they're not important films, but I think that those films are getting made over other kinds of films because the funding is there. And I think filmmakers go where we can possibly make our films. When you license material for a film, you license by market. So let's say you're doing a film for public television, that is a market. If you want to distribute it to the educational market, that's another market. If you want to sell it on Netflix or you know, th- stream it, that's another market. So you pay by how, how far and wide it's going to be shown. When Eyes on the Prize was shown in the United States on public television, They hadn't realized it would be so successful, so they only licensed it for public television. So when schools and libraries wanted to buy this definitive history of the civil rights movement, they couldn't, because the filmmakers couldn't afford to pay the fees to license that footage. And that caused a tidal wave within the documentary community, realizing that our public history was no longer available to us, because it now was becoming part of the corporate and commercial world. So a number of foundations put up money to allow them to buy the rights for this footage, but it also then started a movement within the documentary community to re-exercise, to again claim fair use, to allow, to encourage filmmakers to make historical films and not be intimidated by the costs, the financial side of using this material. So what we did is we ended up working with a legal clinic, an intellectual property law clinic, at a university in the United States where the head of that clinic was the leading authority in the US on fair use and documentary film. And he assigned two of his law school students to take our film as a case study, and they ended up spending the semester writing a 26-page legal analysis of the film telling us where we had a legitimate legal argument to claim fair use. Part of, you know, so much of making a documentary, I'd say 10 to 20 percent of filmmaking is the creative side where you're in the edit room and you're thinking about what are your artistic choices. The other 80 percent is raising the money and then dealing with all of the business side of filmmaking. I think most of us go into this, we have a vision, there's some (coughs) story we want to tell, but the truth is that if we really are passionate about getting our stories out there, unless we can master this business side, if we can't write proposals that get us funding, if we don't learn about fair use and all of the business side of the equation, we don't get our films out there. I work at Women Make Movies and my job there is to work with women filmmakers who are making their films. And it is fascinating to me because I encounter so many, 10 to 20% of filmmaking is the creative side where you're in the edit room and you're thinking about what are your artistic choices. The other 80% is raising the money and then dealing with all of the business side of filmmaking. I think most of us go into this, we have a vision, there's some (coughs) story we want to tell, but the truth is that if we really are passionate about getting our stories out there, unless we can master this business side, if we can't write proposals that get us funding, if we don't learn about fair use and all of the business side of the equation, we don't get our films out there. I work at Women Make Movies and my job there is to work with women filmmakers who are making their films and it is fascinating to me because I encounter so many women and I'm sure so many people generally have great ideas there's no dearth of great ideas for films but the only ones that get made are the ones that also have either really good producers or where the filmmaker has already gained these skills. Yeah, I have yet to get rich on this film. It is—it's sobering to me because the film is called Joe Papin Five Acts, but usually I call it Joe Papin Twelve Proposals <laughs> because proposal writing is really what I've become expert at, and I—I uh, I definitely I can write the hell out of any proposal. I can negotiate any contract. That's the other thing that I—I have dealt with more lawyers than I have with editors or uh, actors. I, 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 yeah. Today alone, I have three <coughs> emails from the three lawyers I'm still dealing with. Uh, that is a major part. I now can read a contract. In fact, one of the things I do at Women Make Movies is I look at filmmakers' contracts with funders to make sure filmmakers aren't giving away rights that they will need for the distribution of their films. So I've gained all of these skills that I never in my wildest dreams imagined I would need or want, um, nor did I imagine that these things would be part of filmmaking, and yet now I really have come to understand that this is really the nuts and bolts of production. And, you know, I think um, people should really think about becoming producers, because I think they're, they're, everybody wants to direct, but it's really, really hard to find good producers and the skills that you need. So one other thing in terms of the music and some of the creative choices we made. Um, rather than use existing music, we ended up working with a composer. Um, a very famous jazz musician named Don Byron who you didn't see in this Um, and Don ended up creating music for the film well the advantage of that is that I then don't have to license it from a record label I then own that music so I think another thing that you have to think about when you're making your films is what is the source of the music on your film how are you gonna pay for that is it more advantageous to work with a composer so for example right we're dealing with Shakespeare there was a lot of music in Shakespeare's a bunch of Shakespeare's plays i happen to like early music music before like the 1800s we ended up hiring an early music group in the states we went to a church we recorded recordings that are on some of the records that we were using as temp tracks I then owned these recordings, was able to use them. I paid the musicians a small fee for recording the music for me. But that music is in the public domain. That is not under copyright. Things that are old and that has to be true here, right? That's why there's so much Shakespeare now, because people don't have to pay royalties to show Shakespeare plays. I'm assuming you all know about the song Happy Birthday, you know that. Any film that uses that, you have to pay. Uh, and it's an, it's an incredible amount of money now that it costs. So if you, have, if you are filming somebody at, at a birthday party, and everybody gathers around a cake and sings happy birthday, so it's your recording, you still have to license the song from the family that controls that music. And in the past five years, the family of Martin Luther King decided that when king was alive his his whole life was devoted obviously to the civil rights movement and he wasn't concerned with any kind of earning money that wasn't his priority so he never he, when he died he was very poor he didn't leave a lot to his family his family have decided that this collection all of his papers all of the speeches all of those you know famous the march on washington that you see in any historical doc they decided that that was their property, and they sold that collection to a private institution. So that now anybody who wants to do anything on the civil rights era and use any material, including letters of King, or any footage of him, has to go through the family and has to pay for that. Um, you know, it's there are all of these things that are happening sort of under our noses that we're not aware of. But it does have consequence in terms of our working lives as filmmakers if we can't have access to these materials and to know what your expectations are. And you know, everybody says you should have legal agreements. And I agree with that. It's a protection. But one of the biggest lessons that I've learned uh, and one of the biggest, I think, naivetes I have and probably still have is that having a contract does not ensure your rights. And when I say that, what I mean is that having a contract gives you rights on paper, but unless you have the money to pursue your rights, to have an advocate, to pay somebody to assert your rights legally, it's not worth the paper it's written on. This is something I would say is true with fundraising also, that it's A, everything is about relationships, but B, it's also really important that you frame things not in terms of what your need is, but how this is something that is either a shared something, or something that is from their standpoint. I have filmmakers that we work with all the time who go to funders, and they frame the proposal about, I have this great idea, and I'm so passionate about this film, and it's like, does it fit within the funder's mandate? It doesn't matter if it's a great film. The question is, how do you frame it to say to the funder, right? you want to make it as easy as possible for them to say yes. And so your whole goal with writing your proposal, now this is just a funding proposal, which is different than your treatment, but it's to frame it in such a way that you say to the funder, this film is the perfect fit for what you are funding. And here's why. not only saying it's the perfect fit and going down the checklist, and what I often do with funding proposals is I go on the website for the funder and I try to find language that they themselves use. And I try to find a way to not artificially but to organically make that in line with the proposal that I'm writing and to emphasize that. Um, But I also always try to convey a sense of urgency, because there's so many great film projects out there now. Why should the funder film your project over one of the other great funding, you know, other projects when there's a limited pool of funding? They're going to have to make very hard choices by the end. And so by saying that this film has to be made now, you're also saying not only is this a great project, but it's timely, it's relevant, And it's urgent. And if you don't fund it today, opportunity is walking away. You could have had your name on this moving train, and you've now blown it. Um, And another great resource, something um, if you're applying to a foundation in the states, because there are so many foundations now that will accept funding proposals from non-American filmmakers, um, you can Those foundations have to file certain tax forms. It's public information. There is an organization that has an online component called GuideStar. It's guidestar.org. And if you go on GuideStar and you look up that foundation, there is a tax form called a 990. The value of that tax form is that at the end of many pages of (coughs) tax information, it has a list of all of the projects that that foundation funded in the past year. You then get to see what level of funding they're giving to other projects, which is a really helpful thing to know when you're approaching a funder, what level of funding you could ask for reasonably and expect to get. It also gives you a sense of what kinds of projects that they are interested in, whether yours is a good fit. But it also uh, has a list of their board members and often it has the addresses of those people so that you can try to see a, if you have a relationship, if you happen by some miracle to know any of those people, but you can also then write to them personally and let make sure that they know about your project. It's always a good idea to plant as many seeds as possible and to see who is interested, you know, how you can engage people. I always think it's good to come at it from every possible way so that your project is on everyone's radar screen that no matter where they go they're constantly bumping up against your project and that's one way uh, to reach out to to people through doing that. As I mentioned there's been such a shift towards these social issue documentaries. Well one of the ways that that's manifested itself in terms of funding is when you write a a grant application now, funders want to know your distribution plan. It's not enough just to make the film. They want to know that you're thinking as the filmmaker from the outset about what your audience is going to be and how you're going to get the film out there. And many of the funders now also want what are called engagement campaigns, which is how the film is going to have an impact once it's out there. It's not enough to raise the issue. You have to say you've built a network of partnerships with Uh, organizations that are doing this work on the ground and they've committed to get the film out once it's made and while a lot of filmmakers feel I'm a filmmaker I don't want to have to do all of this ancillary work now it's not as optional as it once was on the other hand you could say as the filmmaker if you want a sustainable career thinking about the distribution of your film and how you're going to build your audience from the outset and trying to build partnerships where it's appropriate as you're making the film is also a way to really build your audience for selling the film afterwards. You know one of the ways I like to approach proposal writing is is to pretend that the film is already done and to write it as if it was a review of the existing film because what you're trying ultimately to convey to a funder or to any reader of a proposal is you want them to see the film you want it to come off the page and you want it to become real in their mind that as they're reading it they could imagine the characters like your grandfather or you that they they feel after reading a proposal that if they were to meet you on the street they would recognize you that you have enough flesh and blood and life that as they're reading they start to have a visual concept of the film you want to write it with some drama you're writing right, we're storytellers the first thing we have to do is be able to translate our story in story terms onto the page. And you know, as as frustrating as fundraising is and nobody would ever do it voluntarily, one of the things that it really does help you do is really fine tune your narrative. It, and granted, it's all in the abstract because probably at this point you haven't shot your footage, period, or you haven't shot it all. So you don't know so much of it is going to be made in the edit room. But it does allow you to try to figure out conceptually where the film might go. And I think of it as like the first edit of the film. But if you don't convey from the outset um, a balance of the micro and the macro picture. So for example, with the film that you're describing, you want to say that this film will also be a prism to understand the history of Iraq. So you'll start with the big picture and then go more narrow as to how will we how will we brought be brought into that history? Well, we're going to have a personal narrative that is going to guide this story. And why is this relevant? Well, it's I think that's one of the biggest things that people often leave out of proposals is the relevance and going beyond this the particulars of this story to try to look at the big picture of how this can translate to anybody who's watching it. I think of the proposal as the text version of the film so you're saying right now I don't have the visual finished film to show you, but here is what it is on the page. And it has to come to life. It has to be vivid. The language you use has to be visual. And there has to be some sense of urgency because the competition now is so fierce that unless you can make the case that this one has to be funded now, it's really hard to get funders, uh, you know, and I've been on lots of funding panels, and it is so painful because by the end, you realize that you don't have the money to, to fund all of the good projects that are before you, and you're making painful, painful decisions amongst really qualified films, and the ones that get through are the ones that really can say, Either that they've really thought through the audience and that it's a self-contained package. If it gets funded, it will be made, it will reach an audience, it will have impact. Or films that say, unless they're funded now, this film isn't going to happen, and it's relevant, and it's current. I think those, and I'd encourage you to read each other's proposals. I try to read as many film proposals as I can. Um, Because once you do and you have them side by side, you really see what stands out, what has impact, and what still the filmmaker is trying to figure it out, or where they're really at too early a stage to be submitting funding proposals. I mean one of the hardest things is that because the competition has gotten so fierce, funders now can be much more demanding so that they do demand Often rough cuts, like ITVS, you have to have a whole rough cut to get funded. Um, or you have to have a sample work. So it means that there's a huge investment on our parts as filmmakers before we can even be considered for funding and they don't fund retroactively. So there's, it's sort of like a test, it's trial by fire. And so what you're having to prove is that, you've, that you have perseverance if nothing else to even get to the place that you've somehow, by some act of will and sheer tenacity, found the means to make the sample real and to write this proposal that really shows. And often, I will be candid, you're writing a story that may not actually end up in the film. Because it is a fiction, to say, before you've shot the film, what the story is going to be. It would be a feature, you know, it would be a fiction film if you had a script that you were writing to. But you're still trying to make the case that A, you've, you've got vivid characters, that you have an essential narrative arc. And those are things that, unless you've gotten that far in the process, I just think you're wasting your own time trying to submit to funders, um, because you have to have at least got that much of your project thought out in your mind. And you could say, for example, I've read proposals that say we will meet people like, which is not saying we're going to meet Mr. K, who's 59 years old. It's saying people like this. It's giving the kinds of examples that the filmmaker imagines. Most of the times, Funders will want to know that Mr. K exists because they don't want to fund something and then find out you don't have access or or the characters aren't as compelling. But you can be creative in trying to suggest your vision even if everything isn't necessarily in place. We had, I mean that was an interesting thing working with actors, um, a lot of them are used to being scripted. Yeah. And so some of them, like James Earl Jones, who amazingly stuttered for years of his life and was mute for part of his life, was very uncomfortable at the idea of being asked questions off the top that he wasn't prepared for. And the same was true for Christopher Walken. So we gave them a rough idea of what the questions were. but it is—that's a hard balance to strike. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do is I try to make it more of a level playing field because you obviously have the power if you have the camera. I try to reveal something personal about myself or some way that I'm also vulnerable, and it's not just their vulnerability, and that it's just a one-sided relationship. Um, and it's—it's it's tricky because it really is a. But right, you're meeting them for a very short amount of time and trying to establish a comfort zone and a feeling that they can trust you is really challenging. But I think trying to, to say something about yourself or somehow how you got interested in this so that you're also part of the team that they're on, I think really helps. Um, I think collaborating is really a great idea, but I think you really have to make sure in collaborations that you're on the same page, that you know who owns the rights to things um, and that you've protected your own interests. I think it's very easy to meet somebody and to feel like oh we have a synergy and we're both interested in the same thing or anybody on a team. It's, It's very tricky to find the right collaborators and I think the more time you can take in finding those, making sure before you commit. Just think of it as a marriage. Because these things, one of the things that makes filmmaking harder, I think, than other fields, I think it's true for any art, is it's very hard to say, OK, I'm going to be creative from 9 to 5. Right? I'm going to get to the office, and my <laughs> creative juices will flow in this very efficient time period. And I'll push the film forward, and I'll go home. and Tomorrow I'll do the same. It's a process. And these things take on a life of their own. But for that reason, it also means that they often take longer than we expect. It's hard to get them to be efficient. And I think when you're looking for collaborators, you want people who are a mix of creative energy, but also people who can function within time constraints. Because I think it's very hard. I know some really brilliant editors who have to go on their artistic journey, and that can take months and years, and what they eventually come up with is wonderful, but from a budgetary standpoint, it's really challenging. So now when I look at potential partners, I'm not only looking, are they brilliant, creative geniuses, but are they also people who can work practically um, within certain constraints like budget, um, so those I'd say are some of the key things. I'm trying to think what else. I think yeah, trying things on a small scale, and obviously being in school is such an advantage because you can also make the mistakes without having them have the consequences that my mind did in real life time, you know, on a much higher scale. Um, I think. It's, it's such a great thing. I heard Milos Forman. Milos Forman used to be the uh, head of the Columbia Film School in New York. Um, and he said that he thought that the one huge thing film school offered film students was the opportunity to, to fail. Mm. And the stakes are not as high. And I think it's, it is great that you can try things experimentally and really take your creative risks here without it having the same consequence that it does. In real time, I did not go to film school, um, and I see some advantages to that side too. Um, I, you know, I, I did corporate video, and then I volunteered on a ton of films. Um, you know, I worked. I'm such a New Yorker. I worked on a film about a bagpipe school in Idaho, <laughs> and, uh, you know, coming to Edinburgh is not culture shock for me in the slightest. It feels very urban. It's a walking city. For me, going to Idaho was like going to the moon. Right, <laughs> a Jew from New York going to Idaho happens to be the home of the neo-Nazi movement in in the United States, and. Uh, I just, all I was aware of was that I was a Jew when I got to Idaho. I, I, I'm usually very secular and very atheist and very New York. But there, I just felt like I was wearing a yellow star and it was, but it was, it was fascinating to work on all of these projects. I worked on Barbara Koppel's film, um, American Dream, where I went to um, Austin, Minnesota, which is the home of Hormel. You guys have spam. Have that tinned ham that nobody eats anymore, but with big noses. We gave it away to everyone during the war. Right. (laughs) Ah, nobody would eat that stuff. Well, uh, the film that she did was about a meatpacking strike in uh, Austin, Minnesota, the home of Hormel, and I went with her for the year anniversary of that strike. And it was—I mean—the wonderful thing about documentaries is it lets you enter someone else's life and their world, and being in a union town where once the strike hit the entire industry had a ripple effects on the town because all of the the whole economy was dependent on this one company and when it went down everything went down and to watch Barbara in action was just so exciting really allows herself to become a vehicle for these people to tell their stories and by working on it for a year Everybody knew her. She was so much part of the community. It was really a wonderful experience. So for me just jumping in, working on films really was wonderful and I know that there were some uh, film companies that felt that filmmakers who had gone to film school came out of film school assuming that they would direct right off the bat and felt that that was a liability of film schools that you know it's hard to get your first directorial work, and and certainly to get funding for it. And in this climate, it's even harder. So, I, collaborating with somebody who has more experience can be a good idea, but don't sell yourself short in those uh, relationships. Make sure that you protect your rights, and that you're working with people who aren't going to um, exploit you. I mean, I think uh, there's. There, There's a a wealth of generosity in the documentary community. I mean, in New York, we really are a community. It's such a, we're resources for each other, we help each other. You can post on Facebook any kind of question or on the D word. Do you guys all belong to the D word? Do you know what the D word is? They should know. (laughs) They should know. Part of it uh, originated here at the Scottish Documentary Institute. So the D word is an online community of documentary filmmakers around the world. Um, and it's an incredible resource for any kind of question. You might have a question about a festival or about E&O insurance or where to find a good accountant. The D word is really uh, the source. Um, Ben Campus with SDI is one of the founders, and Doug Block, a, a very talented uh, filmmaker in New York, is one of the founders as well. They just celebrated their 14th year. Um, there are a lot of online communities like that that are really great resources um, that are worth joining. This was one of the big like, life lessons I learned about the power of film. There had been a film, this was in the late 80s at the height of the AIDS crisis called Silver Lake Life, which was of a videographer, who, a professor who taught video in California who was HIV positive. And he does a video diary of his own demise of, from he be, AIDS eventually. And when he dies, his partner, who's also HIV positive, picks up the camera and continues the film until he eventually dies. And a a very famous uh, filmmaker, American based in France, named Peter Friedman, who was an editor and a filmmaker in his own right, finished the film after these men died. And so this film was released on POV. And we got a letter from a Mormon woman in Utah. You probably now know Mormons, thanks to uh, Mitt Romney. Um, And the letter said that in her community, being gay, queer, was taboo. And as far as she knew, she had never met anybody who was gay. But seeing this film in the privacy of her own home, which was interesting, showed her, the film was really a love story between these two men, had given her a very different perspective on being gay than any message she got in her larger society, in her community. And she realized that it really, this was a love story, and it really moved her, and it really changed her understanding of of gay and queerness. So Ellen Schneider, the executive producer of POV at the time, and I were weeping. We're reading this. It's so, so moving. So we call this woman, and we say, can we send a camera person out there to film you saying this? Or you know, could we get you a camera and you make a video diary? And this woman was like, what are you, insane? I'd be hung on a cross if I were to go public with this information. But for me that was a revelatory moment in realising also the power that television has to reach people in their home with information that they might not get in the larger society, which I thought was a very interesting thing as somebody who's interested in social change.
0: Okay, there we have it. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Hope you got something from that. I think definitely some uh, great tips there. Um, anyway, uh, thanks very much. and. Uh, feel free to subscribe to us on scottdoc.com or, uh, um, any of our other outlets, Vimeo, YouTube, uh, all that sort of thing. There's video clips of this available on YouTube, so make sure you check that out. Um, and yeah, um, hopefully we'll, uh, see you again. Thanks very much.